So, so I'm here today uh, representing Upward Bound. We're doing a six-week work study, and we did it with the Nanticoke River Watershed Conservancy, and we're in our sixth week now. And we wanted to talk to different people from different environmental groups and conservancies and organizations that have an impact on the environment, which is what we've been focusing on these six weeks. So today we're lucky enough to be with Miss Sydney Williams from the Nanticoke Watershed Alliance. And we're gonna ask some questions back and forth about their organization and her involvement with a lot of things that we've been studying this year and this six weeks. And I'm gonna go ahead and let our students go ahead and as they ask you questions, they'll introduce themselves and I'm gonna go ahead and let them run the show. So I will let them squabble over whoever starts with the first question. So I'll let you guys go, yeah. And if you're not sure who wants to start, I will just randomly say, uh, gee, you should probably start if you want to. Um, my name is Ganesvio, and I go to Laurel High School, and I'm doing the summer program at Dell Tech, the Upper Bounds College program. All right. My first question for you is, um, how did you get interested in what he did as a career, and why? Um, so I, I'd always loved being outdoors growing up. Um, so I think probably by like eighth grade, I knew I wanted to do something environmental. So, um, in high school, I took a few like, you know, AP environmental classes. I love going camping and stuff like that. Um, then when I was looking at colleges. I, I went to, I decided on SU because I liked their, um, environmental program that they have. It was interdisciplinary. So I liked, I liked that you could get multiple different um, facets, I guess, or views of the environment um, rather than just looking at one section of it. So, yeah. um, so what you're doing, this is, um, did you like find out that this was for you? Nah. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, after school, I did a year of service with the, with Nanticoke Watershed Alliance through AmeriCorps. Um, and I think it was um, then where I was like, yeah, this is actually where I want to be. I really enjoyed um, being part of the organization and getting to do the environmental work. It's a lot different from school. You get a lot of your practical knowledge and technical know-how there, but you don't really know how the job works or uh, you don't, you don't know what it, so it gives you an idea of what a career path might look like. So that was, was really helpful. And it, it sort of strengthened, um, my love or solidified the, um, love for the environment. Like I'd made the, the right choice. And this was something for me. I, I was curious if I can jump in, like, how did you know that the Nanticoke Watershed Alliance, like, how did you become familiar with them? Was it something that was one of the options through AmeriCorps or? I was just curious how you come how you stumbled across it. Yeah, so you get like a little a list of people who are looking for AmeriCorps volunteers. So when you're filling out your application, you can kind of tailor it to the organizations you want to uh, work with, and then you tell you give them a list. They'll submit those applications for you, and then the job sites will get back to you for an interview. Um, and then through that, you'll get paired with each other. 
so it's a pretty cool program. Um, I really enjoyed AmeriCorps. Uh, it's good all around for just like skills and learning things, um, you know, learning communication skills, uh, presentation skills, things that you don't get as much of um, in school networking. Um, I definitely gained a lot of confidence professional before entering into the professional world. So that was, it was really cool. Great. What was the most surprising thing that occurred in your job? Um, what's that? Okay. So I did write one out for this. Um, I would have to say that it's our size versus what we can accomplish. So we're a very small staff of three. Um, and then we have an AmeriCorps, a full-time AmeriCorps person with us. So we have four people um, for like 11 months out of the year. Um, but despite our small size, um, we're involved in so many different projects. We have our Creek Watchers program, which um, staff or staff and volunteers go out and they collect water samples along the Nanakook River. I think we have 35 sites um, and that's every two weeks. And then we do a lot of habitat restoration. We work with homeowners, organizations, local governments, towns, cities, and churches. We do all kinds of outreach events. Um, we work with poultry growers. And I also write a lot of outreach, um, uh, outreach uh, materials. So I would just say that's, we do a lot for we're, we're such a little group. Um, are you guys like non-profitable? Yeah, we are non-profit, so. So how, how did you guys think of that? Like, why why is that? Um, yeah, that is a good question. I have not, I don't know that I've even ever asked that question. So uh, I guess just, at, so we're a resource for people to come to. Um, so we'll help fund projects um, all through grants. Um, so it's a place where, where like I was saying before, homeowners, organizations, local governments, um, and churches where people can come and find out what they can do to help the Nanakoke River. And we'll provide those resources the best we can. All right, what, hello. Um, <laughs> go ahead. <I> <laughs> Hello, my name is Kendra. I go to Laurel High School. I'm going into 11th grade and I am a part of the Upward Bound Math and Science program. And I've been attending Mr. Harry Brake's work study with the Chapel Branch Nature Trail. And I have a few questions to ask. How did Wisconsin compare Delaware? Oh, how did Wisconsin compare to Delaware to you? Um, well, I, they're very, I really liked that question. I was thinking about there's, they both have great things. I would say Wisconsin's different in the, it's cold. It's very cold. <laughs> the climate here is a lot nicer um, in the winter. The winters there are rough, but also I think there's a lot of like big charismatic animals in Wisconsin too. Uh, I was thinking of your wolves and bear and um, badgers and things like that. People want to travel and see and like huge, huge forests, like the biggest forest, there's something like 780,000 acres, the Shawamigan National Forest. So Delaware was a lot different. Um, I guess the first thing I noticed was how flat it was. 
Um, so that was different. There was a lot of hills and everything where, where in Wisconsin, where I was from, um, and how much, I guess, how the landscape differs. So while Wisconsin has those charis big charismatic animals everyone wants to go look at, Delaware has a lot of really cool and unique seabirds. You can only see certain times a year here. Um, they have really cool uh, waterways to paddle. Uh, the cypress trees are super cool. Nothing like like that in Wisconsin. Uh, that's like my favorite thing about Delaware is those cypress trees. <laughs> they're awesome. Um, but they're both unique in their own way. Hey, I have another question as well. What has surprised you the most about Delaware? It was the cypress trees I wrote with an exclamation point. Um, I'm just obsessed with them. They're so cool. Um, if you ever get a chance to paddle down the James Branch, it's a really awesome paddle. It almost feels like you're in this weird, like prehistoric kind of kind of place. Uh, it's it's super unique, and I think a a, a really unique part of uh, Delaware's environment. Okay. Um. So, so you know you so you know how you do those things for um travel branch trail. Do you guys do that for others' trails or just that one? So, all right, what kind of project are you guys doing in Chapel Branch? Like how we are cleaning up the trails for others, others to see it. And I think another thing is too, we were focusing on trying to figure out like identifying invasives and trying to figure out how to eliminate invasives that are impacting like some of the natural native growing plants that are there. We're seeing like wisteria and I think we're seeing like, oh, the worst is Phragmites. They're like taking over a lot of the ponds that are at, um, you know, that are found in Chapel Branch. And so we've been slowly, and they've been really good. They've been diving into like identifying and being able to identify the invasives. So I don't know um, how much you guys deal with that. Like G was asking, you know, with other things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, with, um, so we do do a lot of invasive removal. We're actually working on a place now. It's a, it's a wooded area in um, Middleford, outside of Seaford. And we've been removing like Tree of Heaven, uh, Ivy. Um, there's not much, much frag there, but we do have a, a place in Cambridge where we've been battling it all, all summer long. <laughs> um, so yeah, we do do a lot of invasive removal. And then we try to replace that after we pull it, we pack it full of native plants in hopes that it'll combat the invasives a little bit um, so that we can kind of cut down on those invasive populations. That's one of the biggest questions we have is, and I'm wondering, you know, when we're going through, uh, you know, trying to re remove the Phragmites and things like that, I'm wondering how that we can basically get them to stay away you know because it seems like it's an endless task they're just like thousands and thousands and it's like we're always wondering how we even tackle tackle something like that when there's so many you know and just how you keep it under control and I don't know not that you you know are an expert but I mean the thing is like if you've had it, so some insights in how you control such something like that happening I mean I'm just curious about that right so um we I mean there's always you know, we try not to use chemicals or anything um, to stay away from that because it's bad for, for water, it's bad for pollinators. Um, so we try to stay away. So it, it is harder to control it when you're not using a, 
a chemical, but um, you can solarize. So uh, you get a big sheet of plastic and you lay it over the whole area and you leave it there all summer long. And basically the sun just fries everything underneath there, kills it all. So it'll kill the seeds, the rhizomes, um, the plants themselves, whatever it is. And then you go back through and you um, kind of, you have to disturb the soil after that so you can replant and then we will we'll seed it with natives. Generally speaking. So, it kind of cuts down on them, but it's, it takes a long time for things to establish. So after that, it's just like pulling it when you see it. So you just have to stay on top of these kinds of projects constantly um, and just keep pulling, basic weeding, what you probably have been doing for the last six weeks. I have another question for you. What has been the most unusual experience you've had since being with the NWA? That was one I could, I was, I was struggling to come up with an answer for that one. Um, unusual experience. I don't know. I, um, I guess some, something unexpected was um, getting pushback when you're working with certain people. Uh, so we're non-advocacy. We don't have an opinion. Um, and I guess I was surprised when I saw that people were protesting the fact that we were working with a certain group. Um, so I don't know if that's an unusual experience, but it was definitely something that surprised me coming into the job. Oh yeah, I have another question. What drew you to be in this, uh, what drew you to be in this line of work and what prepared you the most for this experience? Um, like uh, I was saying earlier, I've always really liked to be outdoors, always felt very drawn to it. Um, and I think it was like a mix of several things that prepare me most. Uh, my own time exploring the outdoors and reading and learning on my own, um, going to school or taking part in like clubs um, through high school, and then college, obviously, you gain some knowledge there. Um, I do think the year of service in AmeriCorps was probably the most valuable experience I got, though. So. Um, so it all kind of like helped form and shape uh, ideas or, um, I don't know, sort of strengthens them, I guess. Um, do you have a favorite environmental author you would suggest? environmental author. I really like um, Aldo Leopold. He wrote a book called A Sand County Almanac. And I think um, it, it's just, it's a really great book. It's just kind of like a journal uh, he writes in. Um, and it's really cool. All right. What was his name? Aldo, uh, A-L-D-O, and then Leopold, L-E-O-P-O-L-D. I can put it in the chat if you would, if you want. Yeah. Another question could be, what is the most surprising aspect of being a part of NWA? Um, 
Uh, I think, again, it's just like our size and what, what we accomplish. I'm just, I'm always amazed at how much we get done. Um, and, and the amount of, of, of um, things we get, we just accomplish every summer. Like this year we're working on, and this might be another question I'm going to tie it in with, but uh, one of them was, uh, what are we working on in Sussex County that people not, might not be aware of? I'll just kind of put these two together because I already said the, about our size. Um, but uh, even so, we're, we're putting in a project at Mount Olivet um, in Seaford on High Street. We're doing another church in Laurel Centenary Church. We're working on a green parking lot. Um, and then on Conwell Street in Seaford, we're helping um, with a project that they're putting in, um, they're called bump outs. They're like little retention places. The water runs into the little retention. Like it's like a little, I don't know how to describe it, but there's like a curb and then it drops down and they put plants in it. They fill it with a special mix. Um, and the water runs into there instead of the river. Um, and that helps get some of the sediment and nutrients out before it hits the water. Um, and it's just, all the all the really cool projects we do and the mix of things we do um i really love it but i i didn't realize that coming in <laughs> everything we we're involved in but it's really cool you're never bored <laughs> there's always some some really cool project to work on or people to talk to <laughs> um have you seen like a a big change with with, with what you're doing yeah i mean What's really cool, and even though they're not always huge projects, um, it's really cool. Like two years ago, we put in two very large meadows on somebody's property. They had a, several acres. Um, so we did like two like half acre meadows. Uh, and this is the first year where it's really flourished. Uh, it took a while to get established. But it's so cool seeing how it went from empty field and you weren't seeing much life there. And now you go back and there's just flowers everywhere and there's butterflies and bees and flies and all kinds of other insects and birds um, that are really utilizing that land now that were not before. So it's just cool to see even even little things like that. Or Harry, or Mr. Brake has probably seen that in his own yard <laughs> in the front there. So it's really cool to just like watch that that journey um, as the as the projects take off and the all the different animals coming and utilizing it. Um, what was the best project that you've seen the most changes? Mm -hmm. <sighs> think. Um, I think. My favorite project probably was those meadows just because they were so big and they're so beautiful now. They were successful. Um, and I haven't been a part of a project yet that was as big as that, but I've done a couple small ones too that look great now. Um, like the Nutter Park sign in Seaford, we planted that. It, there was nothing really there before. Now there's all those different pollinator plants and it's really full and bright. And it's just nice when you walk by it or drive by it and and you can see all the different um, animals and insects using it now. I was curious too, I don't know if you've experienced this, like at least with the Nanakoke River Watershed Conservancy, um, I think 
it's the same deal where we have a small amount of volunteers and it's amazing like what we try to tackle and get done and it's really difficult when you take the component away of being funded you know with a continuum continue a funding base. And I was just curious, I, this might be part of your answer, maybe for this question, but what, like, what do you think is the hardest or most difficult part? And then also, I mean, I guess that's part of the rewarding part too, but what do you think is the most difficult part about being a part of a nonprofit, but trying to make that change in the community? It's definitely trying to actually get the projects moving and going. So I would say it's finding partners. Like before you can implement the project, you have to um, form a relationship with the person or the organization or you know whatever it is um, and sort of build that line of communication and trust with them um, and then, you know, get funding and then maybe you're able to move forward with the project then. But the hardest part is always getting started with these projects. Sometimes they're easy. Sometimes people come to you and they know exactly what they want. And it's like, you know, there you go. But um, yeah, sometimes meeting certain goals uh, can can be difficult. I can't remember if Kendra or G came to this question or not. Did you guys ask about if someone was interested in doing this? I can't remember if you got to that point in that. I don't think I asked that. Okay. I don't think we did. I think there was something in there that someone put about, you know, if someone was interested or maybe wanted to find out more information about being environmentally involved with the state or just as an occupation, based on your experiences, we got pieces of that already, but what kind of advice would you give somebody that say is in high school? Might not be near graduation yet. And so they're not maybe ready to think about the part that has to deal with college yet. But at any stage, you know, what what do you think based on your experiences, I think would be, you know, the steps they would take to move towards finding out because there's so many different aspects of the environment. And I yeah. know, like when you take bio and everything, there's like, well, how do you even know which direction to go? So I was just curious how you would direct somebody with trying to figure out what where that would be if they think they might be remotely interested in something to do with the outdoors. Yeah, I think um, one thing you can always be doing if you don't want to go to college right away, but you're interested in the environment and you don't know maybe exactly what it is yet, it would be to just volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Um, I mean, it's never too early to start building your resume if that's your plan eventually. Um, I didn't do that. So I can say from experience that it, it is super important to do because employers will be looking at stuff like that. But um, if you're just trying to like find your passion or look for it, there's tons of not even just like volunteer, but there's like hobbyist groups. Um, if you go on Facebook and look at groups near you, you can find like people who like to go hiking or camping or paddling and you can join those groups and people um, in my experience have been very friendly and open and um, it's just a good way to find out what you're interested in, um, as well as building a resume, if that's your goal, too. I don't know what they have left for questions. So, G and Kendra, you're going to have to lead the way on that, because I'm not positive on what we have. But I think there's a couple more, maybe, but I'm not sure which ones. Yeah, I, think, I have another one. What is one thing that most people would not know about the Nanticoke Watershed Alliance? 
So honestly, um, that we exist. I mean, it's, it's hard to be a small nonprofit. Um, and just having conversations with, with random people, like I was talking to somebody at Royal Farms maybe last week and they had no idea who we were, but, um, they were interested in what we do. So I think it just like, yeah, that is the biggest thing. It's like getting the word out there or, you know, um, marketing ourselves so that we're, you know, people know about us. Um, that's and you know the funny thing is there's a couple organizations that have the word Nanticoke River in it so when they hear like Nanticoke River Watershed Conservancy they think we're you and then when they're like well you guys are with the butterfly gardens right I'm like no that's nope 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 so there's like a million people that a don't know even what the Nanticoke River Watershed Conservancy is but then they don't know the Nanakeg Watershed Alliance or like they're not familiar with it. And I think from what I've seen, that's the most confusing thing for people is that they yeah. see one and then, you know, that confuses them because there's a lot of different things. I think, I think there's more that have uh, the word Nanakeg in it and it confuses a lot of people as far as which, you know, role that they take. And technically, I mean, we're just a land trust and we just get into a lot more activities lately with trying to involve people with doing activities and things but it's just so that they have an awareness of us but literally that's not like our main role was the education part of it it's really supposed to be just about land and so I don't know I think when I was talking to you at Riverfest it really helped us out that you had a table there we didn't we started not having a table there for our group because it just wasn't a lot of people stopping by and we weren't that kind of a group where we were doing things as interactive as what your organization does so um, and then I thought in my head, you know, it's interesting how that if one group like ours partners with your group constantly and promotes what your group does to other people that think that we're they're you or vice versa, but like by actually passing people on to you and combining with you and your activities and letting people know what you're doing from our organization, it seems like all of a sudden they start to figure it out. So, I mean, I don't know how much of that partnership was before but for some reason I think there wasn't a lot of co-collaboration between maybe some of the environmental groups and I'm thinking the more that that happens it seems like the more people are informed by like oh I didn't even know that group was there and then this group does that and so I think that that has been kind of a light that went on the last couple of months where I'm like wow that would be one way to get people kind of funneled to each other trying to inform them what's going on it seems like that anyway but Right. They're actually, I've been talking to other, like more groups about this lately, like more collaboration, more promoting each other's work, getting it out there. And I, I don't, you know, the pandemic didn't help. We weren't able to go out like to Riverfest and, and things like that. So um, I think now that the world's opening back up a little bit, it's a little bit easier to get the word out and like, hey, we're here. Um, but yeah, collaboration is great. And and like holding each other up too, because we all have the same goals. Um, you know, so we actually had like a first meeting since the pandemic where everybody came together from several groups last week. And it was like, oh hey, I haven't seen you like not on a computer screen in two years. So it's kind of funny, but it yeah, was and, nice. And I mean, shout out to you too for Riverfest because you helped two of our um members. It was Kendra, I think and Salton were there and they were passing out different flyers uh, to different people so that they could join the art contest that we wanted to have 
and we were involving you with being the judging of that and so i mean that was just a real small example but it did it did work by trying to like come come to a meeting ground where we could try to involve each other in different things so that was that was a big help the other day and that's where i saw an interview i think where you mentioned something on wrde about the project with the plants over by mount olivet and that was something i didn't even know i didn't even i wasn't even aware of that so that was the little clip was mentioning you were on there mentioning what that project was i thought that was pretty interesting yeah yes it's nice to be able to start getting like the word out again um it's so hard when you know everything's shut down so hopefully now that things are opening back up a little bit there'll be a little bit more interaction between groups and and projects on the ground and, and stuff like that Um, have you ever had a project where you thought that this was not going to go anywhere? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, actually the one I'm working on now was kind of like that, you know, I, I think I made the plans a year and a half ago. And so it just takes a long time for things to go up through the, through the ranks, I guess, uh, bureaucracy. Uh, slow. Uh, so sometimes you're like, is this ever going to happen? And then, you know, one day you get an email out of nowhere, a year and a half later, it's like, hey, let's go. And you're like, oh, <laughs> all right. Um, but yeah, it, there's quite a bit of that sometimes where you, there's a lot of like, um, it just takes a long time. And you, you wonder, hey, is this ever going to happen? I, I saw the other day too, I wanted to ask real quick, I saw, I think this is accurate, but I think the monarch butterfly has been put on the endangered list officially, I think from what I heard. And I was curious if you had, like, if you see it, not, not necessarily if you see an end to the that means, you know, of like, how is that going to be solved? But is there, with that happening, is there still, do you feel recovery back from that? And like, in what ways do people from whatever, even Delaware or wherever, do you think there's certain things that they can do that would be able to change that that path? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think if more people planted natives, um, especially host plants for butterflies like the monarch, so milkweed or butterfly milkweed, um, you know, if we were all planting a lot more of that, they'd have a lot more food. But I, I think some of it's probably you know, a lot of it is habitat destruction um, and building out like these huge developments or shopping centers or parking lots for, you know, carpooling to somewhere else. Um, and it's you know, happening in these tracts of land that are maybe wildflower meadows or the, you know, forests and then the forest edge where those flowers grow are now not there. Um, people don't always like the way natives look in their yard because they, some people think they might look like weeds. Um, so, but I think with like advocacy and, you know, hopefully, right. But it's not impossible. I mean, if everybody pulled together, you know, we could provide the resources that they need. Um, have you, have you ever had someone ask you out of nowhere, how can I join you and help you out with a project? 
Yeah. Um, sometimes we're just working um, on the, you know, planting somewhere near like a sidewalk. Somebody will walk by and they'll ask us what we're doing and for our information. And, and sometimes they do come back and volunteer for another project um, or at events, we'll put out a sign up sheet. And when people come up and talk with us, we have, you know, have a conversation. This is what we do. This is who we are. And sometimes people want to sign up to volunteer. So it, yeah, it happens. You're going to have to help me refresh my memory because I don't think this was last year, but maybe it was last summer. But you were with our group again over the summer when we did something similar. It was a work study and we went to Trepon and you were helping us test the water. Yeah. The... Yeah. Was that last summer? Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. I think it was last August. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. So we had done that last year and I remember the levels were like, there was nothing, you know, like able to live based on the oxygen level. And I'm, I mean, we were talking about how that was impacted from like spillover and things that run off the ground and that go into the pond and things like that. And similar question, like with the butterflies, do you think that that it's really, it's hard for me to come to the point of realizing what used to be there and then there's nothing there and that it is irreversible. You know, it really makes me sad to think that that pond would never be able to go back to what it used to be. And that's what I was wondering is that things like that, ecosystems like that is that impossible if it's to a point where there's nothing living is there anything that you can do short of like stopping the runoff that's one obviously to stop that from coming into the water but is that ever possible to take it back to what it used to be like in a body of water like that <laughs> i don't think it's impossible it would be difficult because there's so many different inputs right so there's people people putting fertilizer on their yard and it rains. Now that's in the pond or somebody didn't keep up with their septic system and that's leaking. And now that's going into the pond or salt on the road and the snow melts. And now that's going in the pond. Um, so it would take a huge level of collaboration, but um, I don't think it would be impossible. I mean, there's, there are some persistent forever chemicals that we might not be able to get rid of. Um, but some of those nutrients and stuff over time, they would, you know, plants would use them up. Um, and with less going in, you know, the water would, you'd start to see the water clear up. You'd start to see more plants going in the water because it's cleared up. Um, but it's such a complicated issue because there are, it's just so huge. Um, I don't really have answers for solutions, but like, here's what it would take. Um, but not all hope is lost. I'm a glass half full kind of gal. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you kind of have to be, um, you know. I mean. It's a lot easier to do that. Like I have fish tanks and it's a lot easier to figure out how to get the level back and things like that because it's very contained, you know. But right. I always try to think of a bigger picture if that's possible in a bigger picture. But it just, uh, it's amazing to see, you know, it's amazing to see that when we were testing the water and what it has become is sad, but... It's just, uh, you always wonder like, how can you, how can you recover from it or how can you fix it, you know, repair it? Yeah, it, it's a big, it is a big problem and it's an even bigger, there's so many moving parts, you know, it's getting like everybody on the same page is what it would take.
I don't want to keep on asking questions because I can't, I don't know if Kendra or G have more to ask. So yeah, I'm going to let them let me know in the chat when they're starting to run dry, but I want to give them a chance to ask anything else. Yeah. I don't know if I asked this already, but what is the single most effective action people can do to impact their envi their environmental community? Um, so I think it's through conversation and dialogue, personally. I mean, we all know the, the, what we've read in textbooks, what, what our teachers have told us, what the government has told, you know, carpool, eat less meat or no meat, use low energy light bulbs, recycle, and all those things are really good and really helpful. Um, but unless everybody's doing it, you know, it's hard to achieve systematic change. Whereas I think having a conversation and keeping an open mind, even if someone might not agree with you on the other side, um, that doesn't hurt. Or to use Mr. Brake as an example, in his front yard, <laughs> that has garnered, the pollinator gardener has garnered a lot of attention and he's talked to a lot of people um, who have been interested. So actually somebody in his neighborhood um, did get a hold of us and we are going out to their house um, next month to maybe install a pollinator garden. So, you know, it might start with you. It might not feel like that big, but if you say something to somebody and they're like, hmm, you know what? I, I think they're kind of right. And then they say something to somebody and they say something to somebody, there's kind of a chain reaction and you are making little waves of change each time. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's a good place to start. The one thing too, I was gonna ask you, is, do you think that's really difficult trying to change people's minds? As, I mean, when I moved in certain neighborhoods, you know, that everybody is, has the different companies that come and they're very um, set on what they think their property should be like, you know, very trim, very organized, very uh, great lawn, you know, fertilizing in the fall, fertilizing in the winter, making sure it's really neat. And you were, you touched on that before we said some people will see a lot of things that are with natives and they kind of see it being unruly and looking a little wild and kind of weedy. And so I get that because, you know, sometimes when you're looking at something, it's not, and then you look at somebody else's, it's right next door. It doesn't look at all the same because they're very neat plots of organized plants and it's trimmed and whatever, you know? And so not, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that it's funny that I have a side of the yard. That's like very kind of still not affected by like, we didn't plan anything with butterfly garden on the one side, but now that, we have established the butterfly garden on the one side of the yard. It's like I get used to seeing those things now and I wish I could see it everywhere around house. And I would have never really thought about that, I think, until I actually saw how many different varieties of things that were growing up and then actually saw the bees and see the butterflies and see the insects coming around. And it's just, um, I think it's a hard, I don't know if it's a hard ask, but it seems like it's a hard ask to get to that point to have people realize what could be unless you actually do it. And so I don't know how you get people to that point. I was just curious if you kind of see that with like that mindset of getting people to understand, because I think if they're so used to what considers a great front yard or something, I think it would be really hard to get out of that area of like, well, this is how you maintain your property. You know? Yeah. I mean, some people are, you know, you're, you're not going to change their mind like up front and, and you know it. So 
I guess I don't try to change mine so much as present with, with facts um, and say, you know, yeah, here's, here's this fact and, you know, they can do what they want with it. But I guess speaking to your yard or what we've noticed there, we started putting those signs in the yards and that has helped so much. I think before people were like, oh, this is weedy and unruly, you know, like this looks wild. Um, you put the sign there, people read it, they go, oh, I see. And then we've actually gotten more contact from people since we started with the signage. So um, yeah, I guess it's, it's a funny thing, you know, you just kind of present like it a different way and people are more open to it. Not everybody, but um, I've noticed a, a shift since the signs started going up around and, and just talking to people too, um, being able to get out and like Riverfest or just tabling events again, um, like Earth Day at the zoo in Salisbury. Um, you know, people, they do want to have that conversation. Some people do. Um, they really are interested in learning because they do want to make a difference. And then some people, you know, they don't. And you've got to cut your losses sometimes. But um, I, I would say most people are open-minded and pleasant to talk to for the most part. I've never had somebody be like totally mean to me or, you know, a jerk and say like, oh, this is wrong. And, you know, so. Um, have you ever been to a project that had like too much trash in it? That had too much? Yeah, too much trash. Yeah, so um, we're, we keep up the green infrastructure, which is, uh, they're usually like plantings along roadsides, like the one I was talking about on Conwell Street. I'm not an engineer, so I, I don't really know <laughs> the technical terms. I've like read them and I'm struggling with the what they're called. Um, but part of what we do with those is make sure that they're not full of trash. So um, probably like June, May, I think actually we went up there and started cleaning them out and they were completely clogged up with trash, just full of it. Um, the ditch wasn't draining right because it was clogged up with trash. So you, you definitely trash can be a, a problem sometimes. There can be too much of it and that stops things up and actually causes flooding in people's yards or in roadways. Um, and that can be, a you know, more problems can come out of that, so. Um, what is the big reason for moving towards native plants? Sorry, it's cutting out a little. Um, the big reason for moving towards native plants. Oh, okay, uh, so native plants, I mean, they're, um, you know, they're, they've acclimated here. So they're used to our weather, they're used to the soil. So in turn, that makes them more resilient to disease, to pests, they can stand up better to the environment. Um, and then since they evolved here in this environment, our native insects and plants, um, not plants, <laughs> birds and, 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 you know, animals like that have, also evolved with those plants. So they, they need each other at this point. So it's really important to plant natives to provide resources for the um, insects and birds and other critters that uh, depend on them. Because in some cases, it's the only plant that, you know, this moth can lay its egg on. And without it, you know, there'll be no more of that moth. Like, um, 
the monarch and the milkweed. So without milkweed, there, there's no monarchs or uh, zebra swallowtails and pawpaw trees. So they're the only, you know, it's its only way to reproduce. Without it, we don't have them. All right, I think this um, is my Did AmeriCorps impact your environmental interests as much as your education at Salisbury University? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely made me more interested. Um, as I said earlier, you know, your education gives you the knowledge and the technical know-how, but it's not until you're out there doing the job where you kind of start to learn to take all those pieces, all that practical knowledge you learned and piece it together or see the connections between them. Um, so I'm, you know, taking like large scale things, um, and then applying it to small scale things and seeing how that like affects just, just the community or the region um, based on something that happened in the Nanticoke River. And that's not, you know, something they teach you in school that I've learned now. And I think it's, um, yeah. You, or, and the fact that you just never stop learning either, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of cool. You have to keep up with, with the times, um, you know, uh, it's, science is dynamic you know it's not not static so um it's yeah I I think I got a little bit uh <laughs> I trailed off a little there I'm sorry but yeah um AmeriCorps definitely um strengthened my interest uh in the environment I think it's cool that you brought that point out about how like science is always changing though because I think that's the big draw to what people don't realize they always say that they want to get into something that maybe is different it's not doing the mundane thing every year or every day and the thing is that's the one thing i've always noticed even when i was little when i was outside there's always something different that you notice and when we go to nature the nature trail chapel branch if we go early enough we'll definitely see things that we would never see during the rest of the day and it's really interesting how to find things that you can at least I find this in nature, that's the one thing you can do where you can pull back from technology and you can like really observe things that you just take for granted every day when you walk past it. So that was a kind of interesting thing when we bring people out to the trail because it's also a break for us being able to get away from our schedule and be able to notice things that we never, we really take for granted because I never see it. So I'm sure that's the same with the experiences that you have where, where you go and try to do the different projects that you do with your organization. But it's that, at least for us, I mean, it's always a sense of being outdoors and it's something that's different every day. So you never really will get bored. And it's kind of interesting to do that as a career. Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of trying to say that. Like, um, it's, uh, you never stop learning, but now you're you're learning about something that you're excited about, that you're passionate about, and you don't, you don't really want to stop. But when you get out of school, you're like, oh, I'm done. And it turns out that's not the case. But yeah. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I love it, so. I know Kendra said that was her last question, but I'm not sure if she has uh, more. So I'm gonna let you let us know, G, sorry. Um, well, this is kind of an easy question. What's the difference between a native and an invasive plant? 
Well, the, the native what has evolved here. So, um, you know, like black eyed Susans, that's a, it's a native plant. Um, it, it came here, it's always been here. And then like an invasive, like zebra mussels, um, it came over in ballast water on ships. So they fill the bottom of their, they suck in all this water before they leave to bring their barge down so they can keep, you know, keep it level or whatever. I'm not a boat expert. But then when they come over here to America, they empty that ballast water. So it rises up as they go into the port. And a lot of, you know, the zebra mussel larvae was in there. And now it's taking over. I know it's a huge problem in the Baltimore Harbor, probably in like Norfolk, probably I know in the Delaware Bay, it's it's a big issue. It clogs drain pipes. It, you know, it doesn't have any natural predators. That's the other thing about invasives. That's why they end up being everywhere and uncontrolled. And why they're such an issue because um, they have no natural controls here, no predators to keep their population in check. And then they don't leave any room for our native mussels to grow because their populations just go unchecked. Mm -hmm. Somebody sent me an email, one of the students sent me an email and they wanted me to ask this question. I just thought right now, but, and I never thought about this, but um, they asked me, the issue with ticks, are ticks considered invasive or is that just something that's in every environment? I don't know how to answer that. So I don't know if I'd never even thought about that. Yeah. Oh, um, so, I mean, they are native. We have like six native ticks, I think, five or six. Um, but I don't know. I know that since they're vectors for disease, I don't know if some of those diseases have been brought, brought here um, by maybe like an invasive bug or you know virus on something or if it bit something that wasn't supposed to be here um yeah that's it's an interesting question though the ticks themselves are are native yeah i never knew that i don't i think i don't even know what i thought they were i just didn't realize that they were considered native so that's interesting yeah but and is that related to like the, the there's a big alert right now with like the red lantern um butterfly thing I mean, i'm starting to see like there's actual places right in delaware where they're appearing i haven't seen them i know beth has told me she lives in sussex county in laurel she hasn't seen any yet and i haven't seen any here in wacomico county yet but i was up in hartford county over the weekend um and i saw a ton like i was babysitting uh the dog at my dad's house and I went out there in the morning and there was like 30 and I just had a fly swatter and was just smacking them and the larvae the, the little nymphs were everywhere um so they're definitely an issue um I don't really know what they're you know with DNR and it's kind of funny too because you have all these different state programs you know the Maryland Department of Natural Resources and you have Delaware Department of uh, natural resources and environmental control. And I don't know if they're working together or what, what they're doing to control their populations. And I'm not also not sure how far they've spread yet, but it, it is, I think they're going to be an issue. Um, I think they also um, are a problem with grape for like the grape family. So I don't know, if, you know, I know um, up on the other side of Maryland, there's a lot of vineyards. That's a big thing up there. So it could, you know, people be facing economic issues as well. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure what 
I know the tree that is their host tree is invasive as well. So that's also, you know, the tree of heaven. So I didn't realize that was their host tree. Ah. Which is also invasive. So now we have two invasives that need each other here and nothing to control either populations. All these sort of problems are, you know, kind of connected and also hard to deal with. Like there's no clear solution at this point that I've seen. So G, Kendra and Salim and everybody that's here, um, do you guys have any more questions? And it's fine if you do. I just want to make sure I'm not undercutting somebody if they want to ask something. No, I'm finished. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't have none. Okay. So, Sydney, is there a way that we could find out, um, like, how would somebody best be able to find out the programs that you have? Like, where can they find more information about your group and find out more about what you can do for them? Um, where's the best places for them to look you guys up and find that information? Yeah, so our Facebook or Instagram, also our website, nanocokeriver.org. I have to say it's it's a little, it's under uh, construction right now. Somebody got into our website and um, yeah, so we're rebuilding it right now. So it's a little, not everything's up, but stay tuned. We're getting it fixed. Um, but our Facebook and Instagram are all up to date. So we post volunteer opportunities, um, where we're going to be, what classes we have offering coming up workshops and whatnot um yeah and and you um work in do you work in the whole state of delaware no we're just in sussex county just in sussex county okay that's all and then a little bit in wicomico in dorchester in um maryland oh cool okay i didn't realize that yeah i wasn't sure how far your scope was so yeah well thank you very much for doing this with us today oh i got another question oh you do good oh awesome um, cool what is the um average volunteers do you guys get so there are usually older and retired um i think that's just because it's it's easier to get volunteers in that age group um but every now and then we get like a younger group um for like trash cleanups and stuff we tend to sometimes um school groups and like high school groups will um volunteer to come out uh we did get a couple younger people for creek watchers this year usually sometimes like high school students who want to get experience or see what they're passionate about try it out so but it is i would say like 60 percent retirees all right anybody else <laughs> Hope I'm finished. Okay. Well, again, we want to thank you for being able to take the time with us. We were trying to get a lot of different organizations that we didn't have time in that six weeks to meet. And you you and your organization are really big as far as the different things that um, that you do for the community. So we wanted to make sure that we try to catch you and try to open that up so that people will have an awareness of things going forward and then when we do things in the future like this again with the work site we can be involved with you guys more so um thanks for taking the time to meet with us today yeah thanks for having me oh and i think we're gonna let you go within the hour so that we don't brain ourselves out too much <laughs> but thank you again and hopefully we'll be in touch with some other projects coming up and then uh, we'll have some more people on our work site who'd be interested in what you do so that'd be great yeah, yeah, well, keep me updated. <laughs>
Thanks again. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.